0: Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Casey Paul Griffiths, and I'm an author for Cedar Fort. I'm the co author of 50 Relics of the Restoration, and I'm guest hosting the podcast this week to walk you through the Come Follow Me for 3rd Nephi 27 to 4th Nephi. Now, I teach religion for a living, and this is one of my favorite passages of scripture in the Book of Mormon, and that's saying a lot because I really, really love the Book of Mormon and love teaching from it. But what we see here in 3rd Nephi 27 is really a unique setup. It's after the Savior's visitation with the the thousands of people, and what happens in Third Nephi 27 is more of a personal visitation where the Savior gives instruction to his chosen group of disciples in a smaller setting. So let's dive right in. It starts out uh, telling us that sometime after the initial meeting with the thousands of the Nephites, the disciples of Jesus were journeying together and united together in prayer and fasting. And Jesus appears to them and basically says, what can I do to help you? And not surprisingly, the question that they have for the Savior is a question that we're still wrestling with at our times, which in verse three is, Lord, what will thou, what will thee that thou should tell us the name whereby we should call this church? For there are disputations among the people concerning this matter. Back in Nephite times, it seems like they still had some disputations over what the church should be called and what the correct title for the church was. Now, the Savior's reasoning back then is probably the same reasoning that we... uh have experienced in our time as well. The Lord said unto them, Verily I say unto you, Why is it that the people should murmur and dispute because of this thing? Have they not read the scriptures, which say you must take upon you the name of Christ, which is my name? For by this name ye shall be called at the last day. And whoso taketh upon him my name, and endureth to the end, the same shall be saved at the last day. Wherefore whatsoever ye shall do, ye shall do it in my name. Therefore ye shall call the church in my name, and call upon the Father in my name, and he will bless the church for my sake." Now, you might be interested in knowing that the question of what to call the church was one that continued on into our time, and that President Nelson's offered some clarification on recently. When the church was organized in 1830, uh, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, the two Elders of the church took this concept from the Book of Mormon very seriously. And in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the church was called the Church of Christ, just very simply. That seems to be the title that the church went by for the first four years of existence until 1834, when possibly to avoid confusion with other churches called the Church of Christ, a conference of church leaders voted to change the name to the Church of the Latter-day Saints. If you visit Kirtland, Ohio today, you'll still see on the outside of the Kirtland Temple the Church of the Latter-day Saints, or the temple built by the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Now, this became another point of contention. Occasionally, during this time, you would see the name combined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. During uh, a severe apostasy that happened in 1837-1838, some people even criticized Joseph Smith for taking Christ out of the name of the Church. Thomas B. Marsh, um, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, wrote in June 1838 that dissenters claimed to be the old standard and called themselves the Church of Christ, excluding that of saints, and said it not Brother Joseph and the whole Church, denouncing them as heretics. Well, Joseph Smith escapes from Kirtland, and when he arrives in Missouri a few weeks later, in on April 26, 1838, he receives a revelation that once and for all clarifies the name of the church. Section 115 of the Doctrine and Covenants verse 4 says, For thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, throughout Joseph Smith's life, that is the name of the church from there on out. And that's been the official name of the church ever since the revelation was received in 1838. However, there's been all kinds of nicknames float around, most prominently Mormon, that have been associated with the church. Now, recently, President Nelson. emphasis on using the name of the church comes from, yes, 3rd Nephi 27, but also uh, a consistent series of statements from church leaders asking people to use the correct name of the church. So we've asked politely, and now we're getting a little bit more direct. For instance, in 1979, Marion G. Romney, who was a member of the first presidency, said, Members of the church do not resent being referred to as Mormons, nor does the church resent being referred to as the Mormon church. As we have said, however, it is not the correct name of the church. Its correct name, as we have already explained, is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, the next time we see that come up is in 2001 when the first presidency sent an official letter just before the Olympics came to Utah and the church was going to be highlighted a lot in media to ask uh, media outlets to refer to the church as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And when referring to church members, to call them members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Latter-day Saints. There was even a, a video prepared for the um, 2002 Olympics where Steve Young and Charlene Hawks talked a little bit about how we were Christian and how we wanted to be referred to as Latter-day Saints. Now, another thing that's happened over time is that you might have noticed morphing and changing in the church logo, including the new logo that was introduced at the last conference in April 2020. I was a brand new missionary when uh, the church logo that had the Church of in small print, Jesus Christ in large print, Latter day Saints in small print at the bottom. And I remember walking into a bike shop and a guy seeing my name badge walked up and said, How you doing? And he looked at my name badge and said, Jesus? The, the name Jesus Christ was so large, he thought that was my name, which I wasn't embarrassed uh, about at all. In fact, I thought it was kind of neat that he recognized just from looking at my badge that I was a representative of Jesus Christ. Now, likewise, uh, as we got closer and closer to the present, more and more church leaders emphasize this. In 2011, President Boyd K. Packer said, obedient to Revelation, we call ourselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints rather than the Mormon Church. It's one thing for others to refer to the Church as the Mormon Church or to us as Mormons. It's quite another for us to do so. A couple of months after that, President M. Russell Ballard uh, mentioned a recent opinion poll indicated that far too many people still do not understand correctly that Mormon refers to members of our church, and a majority of people are still not sure that Mormons are Christian Even when they read of our helping hands work throughout the world in response to hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, and famines, they do not associate our humanitarian efforts with us as a Christian organization. Then Elder Ballard added, Surely it would be easier for them to understand that we believe and follow the Savior if we referred to ourselves as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In this way, those who hear the name Mormon will come to associate that word with our revealed name, and with people who follow Jesus Christ. Now, when President Nelson became president of the church, this was one of the very first things that he addressed. I'm just laying down the line here to show you he's not the first person to bring it up and this isn't a new problem. It goes all the way back to those disciples in 27. President Nelson got up and announced that he was asking the media and members of the church and everyone concerned to use the proper name of the church and then he gave this reasoning for it. He said, I did this because the Lord impressed upon my mind the importance of the name he decreed for his church, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Then he added, as you would expect, responses to this statement and to the Revised Style Guide have been mixed. Many members immediately corrected the name of the church on their blogs and social media pages. Others wondered why, with all that's going on in the world, it was necessary to emphasize something so inconsequential. And some said it couldn't be done, so why even try? Let me explain why we care so deeply About this issue. First, let me state that this effort is not a name change. It's not a rebranding. It's not cosmetic. It is not a whim and it is not inconsequential. Then President Nelson added, instead it is a correction. It is the command of the Lord. Joseph Smith did not name the church restored through him, neither did Mormon. It was the Savior himself who said, for thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And going back to the Savior's reasoning for this name in 3 Nephi 27, the Savior said, how be it my church save it be called in my name? For if a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. Or if it be Called in the name of a man, then it be the church of a man. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church. If it so be that they are built upon my gospel, and I would emphasize today that following the Savior's instructions in 3 Nephi 27 and Doctrine and Covenants 115 and the numerous witnesses that for 40 years have been patiently asking us to just make this subtle shift in our nomenclature, it's important that we remember that like the Savior, reason this is not the church of Joseph Smith or Russell M. Nilson or any. Any other person, even Mormon, as wonderful and beloved as he is, would probably be a little embarrassed to have his name associated with the church. It's the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, the Savior spends the first eight verses addressing that particular question. And now that we've established the name of the church, let's focus on basic gospel doctrine. The Savior says, If it so be, verse 10, that the church is built upon my gospel, then will the Father show forth his own works in it. But if it be not built upon my gospel, and is built upon the works of men, or the works of the devil, verily I say unto you, they have joy in their works for a season, and by and by the end cometh, and they are hewn down and cast in the fire From whence there is no return. Now, the question then becomes what does he mean by the gospel? In some sense, the gospel is this broad, broad collection of commandments, of standards, uh, of beliefs that we all try and adhere to. And yet sometimes that gets a little overwhelming, doesn't it? To think of all the commandments, all the beliefs, all the things that you want to do, but you can't quite, or all the things that you want to know, but you're learning as fast as you can, and you're limited in your capability to do so. So with that in mind, the Savior gives a really, really simple, straightforward definition of what he means by the gospel. In other words, if all those beautiful things like baptism for the dead and elders quorum, relief society, young men, young women's, uh, our branches that come off the tree. This is the central trunk of the tree. This is what. We hope every Latter-day Saint holds in their heart, and that every one of us, regardless of how diverse we are in race, background, or nationality, shares in belief altogether. He said this, Behold, I have given unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel which I have given unto you, that I came into the world to do the will of my Father, because the Father sent me. And my Father sent me, that I might be lifted up upon the cross, and after I had been lifted up upon the cross, I might draw all men unto me, that as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father, to stand before Me to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And for this cause have I been lifted up, according to the power of the Father. I will draw all men unto me that they may be judged according to their works. And it shall come to pass that whoso repenteth and is baptized in my name shall be filled, and if he endureth the end, behold, him will I hold guiltless before my Father the day when I come to stand the world. Now that's not super complicated. And that's a very, very simple way. The Savior adds in a few commandments about repenting. In verse 20, he says, Repent all the ends of the earth and come unto me and be baptized in my name, that you may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, that you may stand spotless before me at the last day. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. So, We can make the gospel really, really complex, which is okay in certain settings and situations. We can make the gospel real, real simple, which is this, that Jesus Christ came and died for us and pleads with us to repent and change. might make you feel good to know that Joseph Smith followed the same teaching in his life. In 1838, when he was asked, what do Latter-day Saints believe, he gave this statement. The fundamental principle of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven, and all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. So keep in mind, those things that you might love about the church, whether it's the social structure or ordinances that we do, are all linked back to this central idea that Jesus came, died, was buried, and was resurrected on the third day. President Nelson, at one point said that all essential ordinances of the gospel symbolize the atonement of Jesus Christ, meaning, again, just that idea that Jesus came died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Now, there are a few things that are unique to this passage that I want to highlight to you as well. For instance, in thirty-five twenty-seven, he said, write the things which you have seen and heard, save it be those things which are forbidden. So there are some things that the Savior teaches him here that are so sacred that maybe they didn't make it into circulation in the book of Mormon as we currently have it. But this is also an example of instruction that he's giving to the disciples, the people that are going to be stewards over the people of Nephite, and he gives them some particular unique instructions. For instance, part of the reason why they're expected to keep a record is in verse twenty-five. He says, Out of the books which have been written, that they're going to write, he's implying, and which shall be written, shall this people be judged. For by them shall their works be known unto them. And behold, all things are written by the Father, therefore out of the books which shall be written shall the world be judged. He's telling them that they're going to be judges. And what's the standard that makes them judges? He says this, therefore, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am, and know ye that ye shall be the judges of this people, according to the judgment which I shall give unto you, which shall be just. So be as Christ-like as you can, he tells the disciples, but remember that your job is going to be to judge the people. This is actually one of those interesting threads that you can trace through the Book of Mormon, where judgment pops up occasionally in the writings of the prophets and apostles. So you might have noticed when you were reading in 1st Nephi 33 That Nephi says, I'll meet you at the judgment bar, and there I'll testify to you that I taught you the words of Christ. Nephi also sees in vision kind of a long term vision of what's going to happen to the people of the Nephites, and he sees also, what's going to happen on the other side of the world in the Savior's ministry and around Jerusalem. And then he teaches this peculiar thread, which again pops up throughout the Book of Mormon. This is in 1 Nephi chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And he said unto me, speaking to Nephi, Thou rememberest the twelve apostles of the Lamb, the twelve apostles at Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, and their cohort. Behold, they are they who shall judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Wherefore, the twelve ministers of thy seed shall be judged of them, for ye are of the house of Israel. So the twelve apostles serving under the direction of Jesus Christ will act as judges. And the twelve ministers, which are the stewards over the Nephites, the people he's talking to in 3 Nephi 27, Nephi is told will judge Nephi's seed will judge the Nephites. He says, "These twelve ministers, whom thou beholdest, shall judge thy seed, and behold, they are righteous for ever." Because of their faith in the Lamb of God. Their garments are made white in his blood. Now, you might notice as you read through the Book of Mormon that Nephi makes statements about being present at judgment, that so do Alma and Mormon and Moroni at the very end of the Book of Mormon. In fact, the Book of Mormon ends on this note. Moroni bears his testimony of the truthfulness of the message that he shared. And then the Book of Mormon ends with him saying this. And now I bid farewell unto all. I soon go to rest in the paradise of God until my spirit and my body shall reunite. And I am brought t- forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah, eternal judge of both the quick and the dead. This theme that prophets and apostles attend to our judgment is kind of wrapped up and tied into this idea in Third Nephi 27 that the Lord administers all judgment. In fact, I'm not disputing that. In Second Nephi 9:41, it says no servant is employed at the judgment that each of us has to have an accounting with the Holy One of Israel. But that the Savior also believes in delegation and in assisting people by giving them responsibility as well. And part of the clearly outlined responsibility of the apostles and prophets that are called by the Savior is to act as stewards and judges. Now, does this mean that they have a part in our judgment after this life? I would assume so. It seems like the Savior is saying that. Does that mean that they have a role in the judgment that happens within this life? I would say the same thing as well. That right now, If a person, for instance, is is being judged by a judge in Israel, their bishop, they're using questions that were written by the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in our time. In that sense, there are judges. It's also very, very likely that they are judges in the next life, or that they assist the Savior in judgment, acknowledging and keeping in mind that the Savior is the ultimate judge, that the person that's going to decide who and where you go is going to be Jesus Christ himself. Now let's keep moving, because as soon as the Savior is done giving them instructions, he offers them blessings as well. 3 Nephi 28 is one of the most popular and maybe mysterious passages in the Book of Mormon, because the Savior literally sits down the 12 that he's speaking to and says, what would you have me do for you? Or the way he phrases it in verse 1 of 3 Nephi 28, what is it that ye desire of me after that I am gone to the Father? Now, they all spake, According to the passage, saying, We desire that after we have lived to the age of man, that our ministry wherein thou hast called us may have an end, and that we may speedily come into thy kingdom. And the Savior promises them, All right, after you are seventy and two years old, ye shall come unto me in my kingdom, and with me ye shall find rest. Which again would be a marvelous, marvelous promise. But apparently, three of the Nephites stand back. They don't really say anything. And the Savior steps forward and addresses them directly and tells them, Behold, I know your thoughts. You have desired the thing which John, my beloved, who was with me in my ministry, before that I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. Therefore, blessed are ye, for ye shall never taste of death. And this is the start of... Some of the neatest blessings associated in the Book of Mormon with these three individuals, that the Savior promises the one, they'll never taste of death, and then he says, Second, you shall live to behold all the doings of the Father unto the children of men, even until all things shall be fulfilled according to the will of the Father, when I shall come in my glory with the powers of heaven. This state, which is popularly known as translation, has had a lot of folklore and a lot of myth kind of be associated with the three Nephites. But let's look carefully at what the Savior's promise them so he's not promising that uh, they'll never die they're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, But this isn't the same thing as being resurrected. He does say, you'll never endure the pains of death. But he's saying, when I come in my glory, ye shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye from mortality to immortality. And ye shall be blessed in the kingdom of my father. He said, you shall not have any pain while you dwell in the flesh. Neither sorrow save it be for the sins of the world. This passage has always struck me and really touched me when he tells them, you're going to be impervious to... Human harm. And there's plenty of stories that pop up later on in the book of Mormon about how people tried to physically harm these three disciples, but they were impervious to harm. And yet at the same time, if you're reading the text carefully, the Savior doesn't promise that they'll be impervious to any kind of pain. He says, "Ye shall not have pain while you dwell in the flesh, neither sorrow save it be for the sins of the world isn't that interesting that when he's saying that to them he might also be saying something about himself and the state of resurrected beings one of the passages that has always kind of struck me is in the book of Moses where Enoch sees the savior this is before he's born on earth and says how how is it that you can weep how can you weep the savior is weeping Over the sins of the people in Noah's time. And Enoch seems to be taken aback by this, that the Lord is feeling emotion and feeling sorrow. And I would suggest that this passage, where the Savior reiterates twice that they're not going to feel any sorrow save it be for the sins of the world, is telling us a little bit about what it means to be not just translated but to be resurrected and to be exalted. I think this is the Savior's way of saying, I have reached a point to where I don't worry about my physical body anymore. Uh, A resurrected or translated body is impervious to harm, to damage, or to destruction. But there is still pain associated with being exalted or resurrected or translated, and that is that you do feel sorrow for the people that don't repent, for the people that refuse to come unto Christ and engage in the sort of behavior that will make them happy in the next life. John seems to have been granted the same blessing here. And that actually is something that comes up in the doctrine and covenants. It seems like early on during the translation process, in fact, even before, if we can tell rightly, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery made it to 3rd Nephi 28. They did have a discussion about John the Beloved and if he had died or lived forever, which was a popular topic in Joseph Smith's day. Adam Clark's biblical commentary, for instance, which we think Joseph Smith had access to, uh, directly references this. So Joseph and Oliver um, asked the Lord what John's status was. And this is the revelation given. It's now section seven in the Doctrine and Covenants. The Lord said unto me, John, my beloved, what desirest thou? For if you shall ask what you will, it shall be granted unto you. And I said unto him, Lord, give unto me power over death, that I may live and bring souls unto thee. And the Lord said unto me, verily, verily, I say unto thee, because thou desirest this, thou shalt tarry until I come in my glory and shall prophesy before nations, kindreds, tongues, and people." So John is given this promise at the end of the Savior's ministry near Jerusalem that he's going to minister and tarry until the Savior comes in his glory and will prophesy before all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. In fact, the Savior even has a discussion with Peter and basically says, this is what John desired, your fate is going to be something different. And then the Savior basically implies that Peter's going to die a martyr's death, he's going to die uh, in a way similar to the way the Savior died. Now, interestingly, uh, even though this question comes up in DNC 7 during the Book of Mormon translation process, and then a lot of our information is filled out when Third Nephi 28 is given, there are still encounters with John that happened during Joseph Smith's ministry, and I'm going to mention one with the three Nephites. For instance, um, In June 1832, John Whitmer, who was then serving as the historian of the church, recorded that, quote, "...the Spirit of the Lord fell upon Joseph Smith in an unusual manner, and prophesied that John the Revelator was then among..." the Ten Tribes of Israel. That's in John Whitmer's History, page 27. So Joseph Smith sees and vision the ministry of John the Beloved. I should add parenthetically, this was after John appeared to him as part of restoring the Melchizedek Priesthood and the Apostolic Keys. Another person, Oliver B. Huntington, recorded that during the March of Zion's camp from Ohio, to Missouri. There was a day when several of the men in Zion's camp woke up and saw Joseph Smith speaking to a man several hundred yards away from the camp. They all were nervous and in anticipation, wondered if this was a person who'd come to threaten them or an enemy friend or foe, that kind of thing. When Joseph Smith walked back, he informed them that the man he was speaking to was John the Beloved and that he was still engaged in his ministry to prepare the Ten Tribes' for their return. a the last reference comes from the Apostle Heber C. Kimball, who reported an appearance of John in the Kirtland Temple in 1836, writing that, quote, the beloved disciple John was seen in our midst by the Prophet Joseph Oliver Cowdery and others. That's in Orson F. Whitney's The Life of Heber C. Kimball. So, three certified appearances of John the Beloved. The question becomes, did the three Nephites ever show up? Well, there's one situation where we think may have been the three Nephites. It's basically this. Lucy Mack Smith recorded that early on in the restoration, Joseph Smith had to leave Palmyra to go to Harmony, Pennsylvania, where his in-laws live, where Emma's family lived. And eventually things became so bad in Harmony that they had to find a third place. They had to travel all the way up to Fayette, New York, where a family named the Whitmers lived. And that was where they complete the translation of the Book of Mormon. Now, Lucy Mack Smith recorded that before uh, Joseph and Oliver could... Travel to the Whitmers. The Whitmers had to come down and assist them in traveling. But the Whitmers were also worried about their farm and they had to do this a Farming practice called sowing the plaster of Paris to reduce the acidity of the soil. So the Whitmers are basically saying, we can go get them as soon as we've sowed this plaster of Paris, and we can do that. Lucy MacSmith Smith recorded, The next morning, David took a wooden measure under his arm, this is David Whitmer, and went out to sow the plaster which he had left two days previous in heaps near his sister's house. But on coming to the place, he discovered that it was gone. He then ran to his sister and inquired of her if she knew what had become of it. Being surprised, she said, Why do you ask me, was it not all sown yesterday? Not to my knowledge, answered David. I am astonished at that, replied his sister, for the children came to me in the forenoon and begged of me to go out and see the men sew plaster in the field, saying that they never saw anybody so plaster fast so fast in their lives. I accordingly went saw three men at work in the field, as the children said, but supposing that you had hired some help on account of your hurry, I went immediately into the house and gave the subject no further attention. Lucy MacSmith records further, David made considerable inquiry in regard to the matter, both among his relatives and neighbors, but was not able to learn who had done it. However, the family were convinced that there was an exertion of supernatural power connected with this strange occurrence. So it might not be as romantic or special or, or fit into those kind of um, Latter-day Saint urban legends to say that the three Nephites uh, assisted the Whitmer family in sewing the plaster of Paris, but this is one possible appearance of the three Nephites during this time. Now, Third Nephi 28 also says that these disciples were taken into the heavens and shown uh, things that cannot be written at this time. And it's possible that that might be what the Savior was referring to in third Nephi 27 when he said, I want you to write the things that you see except the things I direct you not to be written. There are things in the church today that we don't share outside of sacred places like the temple doesn't mean that they're secret. Uh, As we say, it means that they're sacred and that they're really special. Now, let's keep moving on here. So we go to 3 Nephi 29, where Mormon interjects himself into the narrative. Mormon ends the story of the Savior discussing uh, with the disciples what to call the church, what the gospel is, and then that blessing that comes to the 12 disciples, including the three Nephites. And he basically ends 3 Nephi by telling us This is the sign. He he tells them specifically, Now behold, I say unto you, that when the Lord shall see fit in his wisdom, this is verse 1, that these sayings shall come unto the Gentiles according to his word, then ye may know that the covenant which the Father hath made with the children of Israel concerning the restoration of their lands and inheritance is already beginning to be fulfilled. And verse four: When ye shall see these sayings come forth among you, ye need not any longer spurn at the doings of the Lord, for the sword of his justice is in his right hand. And behold, at that, that day, if ye shall spurn at his doings, ye shall cause that he soon overtaketh you. So Mormon gives us a little warning here: that the major sign that the work preparing the earth for the second coming has commenced is that the Book of Mormon is there. In other words, if you're holding this book in your hand, it means that you are living. Close to or in the millennial era, that the Book of Mormon itself is the major sign of the commencement of uh, the work of the Father. The Savior makes the exact same promise in 3 Nephi 21 and 22, where he says, When these words begin to go forth among the people, keep in mind, this is the sign that the work has begun. And then he adds a little coda in. Chapter 30 of Third Nephi, where he just warns the Gentiles and asks them to repent, saying, "Verse two: Turn all ye Gentiles from your wicked ways, and repent of your evil doings, and your lying's and deceivings, and your whoredoms, your secret abominations, your idolatries, your murders, your priestcraft, your enderings, your strifes, from all wickedness, abominations, and come unto me." and be baptized in my name, that you may receive remission of your sins, that you may be filled with the Holy Ghost, that you may be numbered with my people who are of the house of Israel. Again, the Book of Mormon walks this great, great line between saying, hey, the children of Israel are special, and then saying, but anybody can be a member of the house of Israel. We want everybody to be baptized and accept the gospel and come unto Christ and receive the same blessings. Well, from there, we leave that remarkable ministry of the Savior in the new world. And now we have to go to a happy, sad part of the story. Fourth Nephi is, uh, first of all, an account of the golden age of the Nephites and the Lamanites, where they merged together into one people, and they lived the gospel, and for 200 years, everything just works out wonderfully. Now, if 3rd Nephi is kind of a precursor or a dress rehearsal for the Second Coming with destructions, natural disasters, corruption, evil, and the collapse of the Nephite Republic before the Savior comes in his glory to the Nephites, then 4th Nephi is kind of the dress rehearsal for the Millennium. And unfortunately, the Millennium has a has a dark ending as well. But let's take a look at what makes them so happy. And by the way, a common complaint with 4th Nephi is why did they Rush through the golden age of the Nephites. Why don't they talk a little bit more? about what made this society so great and how they did everything right. Well, a common answer to that, and not one that I came up with myself, but that I will share here, is that the formula to create 4th Nephi is actually found in the 3rd Nephi. It's the Savior's teachings that he gives starting in 3rd Nephi 11 and running all the way up through chapter 30. If everybody agreed to live those teachings, if every single one of us sincerely and genuinely lived the teachings of Jesus Christ, we would have a 4th Nephi type situation. Unfortunately, we don't, and so we might have to wait until the Savior comes himself and initiates a new reign of glory before we see an era like 4th Nephi. But let's talk about what made this such a great time to be alive. First of all, the characteristics of the Nephi golden age. So as it came to pass in the 36th year, the people were all converted unto the Lord. And upon the face of all the land, both the Nephites and Lamanites, there were no contentions and disputations among them, and everyone deal, deal justly one with another. Now think about that. What if we just dealt justly with each other? How many problems in society would be eliminated if everybody just agreed to try and live the law of justice? Now it says a couple more things here. They had all things in common among them. Therefore, there were not rich and poor, bond and free, but all men were made free and were partakers of the heavenly gift. It's this passage along with another passage in the book of Acts that's going to inspire Joseph Smith and his associates to ask the Lord for the law of consecration. And spend a lot of time, Joseph Smith spends an inordinate amount of time trying to get the people to the point to where they can live the law of consecration. Well, in 3 Nephi, with everyone living the gospel and uh, the the more wicked part of the people removed from the equation, they seem to have no problem sharing things in common. And living the law of consecration, though, I'm assuming what we're getting here is a very, very short summary. If you start to read through the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a lot of complexity and thought that went into the law of consecration. The disciples of Jesus Christ are still there and it says in verse 5, they did heal the sick and raise the dead and all manner of miracles did they work and in nothing did they work miracles save it were in the name of Jesus. So the disciples are at their full power. Everybody is uh, supporting them, sustaining them and they're able to do a lot of things to fix the the issues, uh, the death, the, the sickness, the illness that are common among the people. It even mentions a few domestic items here, like in verse 11. They were married and given in marriage, and blessed according to the multitude of the promises which the Lord had made unto them. And I'm assuming those promises associated with marriage and being married are the same that we see Present in the church today. It also mentions this they did not walk anymore after the performances and ordinances of the law of Moses, but they did walk after the commandments which they had received from their Lord and their God, continuing in fasting and prayer, and in meeting together, oft both to pray and to hear the word of the Lord. So, that obsession that the Nephites have had, they, they had so many intense discussions over the law of Moses, the Savior, ends even the law of sacrifice in 3 Nephi 9 saying, it's not necessary to sacrifice an animal anymore. What's necessary to sacrifice? is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And then in verse 15 and 16 says, it came to pass there was no contention in land because the love of God did dwell in the hearts of the people. There were no envyings or strifes or tumults or whoredoms nor lyings nor murders nor any matter of lasciviousness. And surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. Now this leads us into a really, really important remembrance, which is everybody is filled with the love of God. And maybe just that alone is one of the keys to creating a, an idealized society. That when we look at each person through uh, a parent's eyes, the way Elder Renlund discussed in conference a little while ago, and we don't see them as an adversary, see them as someone that we have to even just compete against, we see them through the lens of the love of God. It even goes so far as to say this, there were no robbers or murderers, neither were there Lamanites, nor any manner of ites, but all were one, the children of Christ and the heirs of the kingdom of God. And this is such an important message too, that in our time, we hear a lot about diversity and diversity is a good thing. It's great for us to recognize what's different about each other. But the way that we really create power within the church and within the societies that we live in is to look for the commonalities, to look for the things that we share with each other and not the things that divide us, but the things that bring us together, the things that unite us, the things that we can agree on, the ways that we can make the world a better place. And he just ends with this coda. For how blessed are they? The Lord did bless them in all their doings. Yea, even they were blessed and prospered until a 110 years had passed away. And the first generation from Christ had passed away and there was no contention in all the land. Now, unfortunately, it's only a few short verses later that things start to go downhill. So if we go to verses 23 and 24. They did make it to 200 years, which is very, very significant. A golden age that lasts two centuries Um, this is measured in different ways. For instance, a little bit earlier, the savior says the fourth generation did pass away in righteousness, but what starts to roll the ball down the hill? Well, it seems to start out in verse 23 with something seemingly innocuous, but that can become bad. It says they became exceedingly rich because of their prosperity. They were blessed. And then, now in the 201st year, this is verse 24, there began to be among them those who were lifted up in pride, such as the wearing of costly apparel and all manner of fine pearls and of the fine things of the world. And on the surface, wanting to dress and look nice really doesn't seem like that serious a sin, but it is the first pebble rolling down the hill that causes this landslide that eventually leads to the collapse of the Nephite society. In fact, it's in the very next verse, from that time forth, they did have their goods and their substance no more in common among them. So Satan first attacks the law of consecration, pointing out inequities among the people, and that creates contention and bitterness. And then we go to verse 26. They began to be divided into classes, and they began to build up churches unto themselves to get gain, and began to deny the true church of Christ. So if money becomes enshrined as one of the chief values, the chief things that a person should search after. It's not too long after that that people look to monetize religion. They try to find ways that they can use religion to get money from people, to become rich, to wax fat, as Brigham Young would say. Um, it says this, it came to pass when 210 years had passed away, just 10 years after the law of consecration began to break down, there were many churches which professed to know Christ, and yet they did deny the more parts of his gospel insomuch so much that they did receive all manner of wickedness and administer that which was sacred unto whom that it had been forbidden because of unworthiness. So churches that become sort of universalist in their appeal to get people in, they're more interested in the number of people that are there than helping people genuinely make Get through problems that might stop them from coming, like unworthiness. It says in verse twenty eight, and this church did multiply exceedingly because of iniquity, and because of the power of Satan which did get hold upon their hearts. And there was another church which denied the Christ, and they did persecute the true church of Christ because of their humility and their belief in Christ. Important remember the disciples are still present among them, and there's still a true church of Christ, but these other churches that start to sprout up immediately start to focus their fire on the true church of Jesus Christ, which in the end is the real threat to them. It says verse thirty, they did exercise power and authority over the disciples of Jesus Christ. So instead of honoring the disciples, the disciples are cast into prison. The disciples fight back, casting the prisons in twain. It even says they cast them in a furnace of fire and they came forth receiving no harm to dens of wild beasts and they came forth receiving no harm. But the problem wasn't the disciples. The disciples could have kept the church going and called new disciples to take place. It was that the people it says in verse thirty four did harden their hearts and were led by many false false priests and prophets to build up many churches and do all manner of iniquity. This is the pattern of apostasy in every age of the world it's never been a question of all the prophets and apostles dying off. in this case, you have three that literally can't die off it's never been a case of the church going away. It's been a case of the people going away from the church and the church losing its ability to affect people and help people because of the hardness of their hearts, the wickedness of them. We go to verse 34. Many false prophets began to build up churches and to do all manner of iniquity. And then we arrive back almost full circle from where we started in third Nephi. There arose a people who were called Nephites who were true believers in Christ. Among them, those who were called by the Lamanites, Jacobites, Josephites, and Zoramites. Therefore, the true believers the true believers in Christ and the true worshipers of Christ, among whom there were three disciples of Jesus, whom should were called Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, and Zoramites. And it came to pass that those who rejected the gospel were called Lamanites and Lemuelites and Ishmaelites, and they did not dwindle in unbelief, And they did willfully rebel against the gospel of Christ, and they did teach their children that they should not believe, even as their fathers from the beginning did dwindle. So again, there's Nephites and there's Lamanites. What's interesting is that the text suggests that at this point, being a Nephite and being a Lamanite was an ideological choice. That it wasn't necessarily something that had to do with your lineage, it was something that had to do with your choice, with your heart, with the direction you went. The Nephites, at least initially here, are the people that support and believe in Christ and the Lamanites are the people that choose not to believe and what's the next step for them? Uh, it was because of the wickedness and abomination of their fathers and they were taught to hate the children of God even as, even as the Lamanites were taught to hate the children of Nephi from the beginning. So again, we come back to those divisions. If uh, the harmonious world of fourth Nephi was built around no manner of ites, now being an ite means that you hate the other ites. Uh, You you teach your children to hate them. You just see them as ideologically opposed to you and as a threat to both of you. By 240 and four years, the more wicked part of the people did wax strong. This is verse 40, and became exceedingly more numerous than the people of God. So again, we're not talking about a long span of years. It's 200 years when the first crack appears, and 40 years by the time there's Nephites and Lamanites again. And then they began to engage in more wicked combinations. And the Gadiant robbers show up again with secret oaths and combinations. This is verse 42. And by the time we reach 300 years, in other words, 100 years after the Golden Age shows its first cracks, it says, verse 45, both the people of Nephi and the Lamanites had become exceedingly wicked like unto another. And this is where we set up going into our final stretch of the history, the Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon where we unfortunately see the destruction of the Nephites and the dissolution of this beautiful civilization that they built up. Now, how did this happen? We look at this and say, how can they go from being a people that lived in an almost virtual utopia to being a people that were so violent, they murdered and killed each other, even to the point of genocide that we're going to see coming up in the next book? Well, the best commentary on the Book of Mormon is the Book of Mormon. If you go to First Nephi 12, this is where... Nephi sees, in vision his descendants and where the angel who he's introduced as the, the spirit of the Lord in 1 Nephi 11 tells him the reason why. He says, The angel spake these words and I beheld and saw the seed of my brethren did contend against my seed according to the word of the angel. And because of the pride of my seed and the temptations of the devil, I beheld that the seed of my brethren did overpower my people. So Nephi and the angel, both there identify the sin that destroys the Nephite Golden Age, is pride. Pride manifests very first in just a real, real simple thing, wearing nicer clothes or nicer jewelry than someone else, which again then manifests itself to destroy the law of consecration, which then causes divisions amongst the people, and within just a few decades, would lead to an almost genocidal situation. Now, this is one of the grand messages of the Book of Mormon, and one of the most important ones for us to keep in mind. From commentary from an ancient prophet, Nephi, let's go to commentary from a modern prophet, Ezra Taft Benson. President Benson said, The Doctrine and Covenants tells us that the Book of Mormon is the record of the fallen people. He's referencing Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verse 9. President Benson continues, Why did they fall? This is one of the major messages of the Book of Mormon. Mormon gives the answer in the closing chapters of the book in these words, Behold the pride of this nation, or the people of the Nephites hath proven their destruction. And then, lest we miss that momentous Book of Mormon message from the fallen people, the Lord warns us in the Doctrine and Covenants, Beware of pride, lest ye become as the Nephites of old. That's Doctrine and Covenants, section 38, verse 39. Now, Pride is one of those sins that President Benson, as our, our preeminent scholar of the Book of Mormon and leader of the church, like to mention. And pride, like President Benson's, Benson said, is the universal sin. It's the sin that destroyed Satan, the sin that caused him to fall from heaven. What do we mean by pride? President Benson gives his own definition. The central feature of pride is enmity. Enmity towards God and enmity towards our fellow men. Then he defines enmity means hatred toward hostility to, or a state of opposition. It is the power by which Satan wishes to reign over us. Now, one thing that we might want to do before we condemn the Nephites too quickly for the dissolution of their golden age is ask, are we doing the same thing? Do we feel hatred in our heart towards other people? It's one thing to disagree with other people. It's one thing to have Disagreements when it comes to politics, or religious beliefs, or child upbringing, you name it. There's plenty of reasons why we can disagree, but we can also disagree without enmity. When we start to feel genuine hatred... Towards other people, we're starting to tiptoe down that road that eventually leads to the destructions of the Nephites. And what's the cure for pride? Well, President Benson gives his own prescription. He says, we have to choose to be humble. In fact, as a prophet of God, he sort of chillingly warned, we can choose to be humble, or we can be compelled to be humble. And he ended his amazing address on pride by giving a couple suggestions about how to be humble. He said, one, we can choose to be humble. By conquering enmity towards our brothers and sisters, esteeming them as ourselves and lifting them as high or higher than we are. Two, we can choose to be humble by receiving counsel and chastisement. Three, we can choose to be humble by forgiving those who has, have offended us. Four, we can choose to humble ourselves by rendering selfless service. We can choose to humble ourselves by going on missions and preaching the word that can humble others. And last, we can choose to be humble by getting to the temple more frequently. He adds two more. We can choose to humble ourselves by confessing and forsaking our sins of being born of God. We can choose to humble ourselves by loving God, submitting our will to His, and putting Him first in our lives. Let us choose to be humble. He adds, we can do it. I know we can. So many wonderful suggestions there from a prophet of God and an astute student of the Book of Mormon as to how we can afford... uh, how we can avoid the kind of fate that the Nephites themselves were subject to. If we choose to be humble, then we really, really can avoid this. And the Book of Mormon was written for the purpose that we avoid the fate that befell the Nephites. If we choose to humble ourselves and love the people around us, and choose to render selfless service, and most importantly, choose to listen to the voice of God through his prophets and apostles, we can avoid the fate of the Nephites and establish a golden age and keep it going for as long as possible as long as we live brothers and sisters i bear you my testimony that the book of mormon is true the words contained within it could not only heal our hearts but can heal our society if we just listen and give heed to them and i end that in the name of jesus christ well thank you very much for paying attention and listening i've been casey paul griffiths and thank you for your time good night Thank you for joining us. For more Come Follow Me teaching materials, visit cedarfort.com. Use code CFPODCAST to save 15% on your entire order. That's C as in cedar and F as in fort, podcast, for 15% off your entire order.